Hello, hello, and welcome to another podcast episode of Overpowering Emotions, where I talk all things big emotions, emotion regulation, resilience, anxiety. I'm in my comorbidity series. Still, there's so much to talk about. I can't believe we're this late into the year already, and I'm still talking about comorbidities. Last week, I talked about the link between autism and anxiety and the differences in the brain, as well as autism-related anxiety specifically, but then the common day, everyday shared idea of what we know anxiety is that, you know, even neurotypicals experience. This week, I'm going to expand on that and talk more about the treatment side of things, because obviously there's going to be big implications, especially because we know the brain processes information differently and the autistic brain doesn't habituate the same way as a neurotypical brain. So that's really important when we're looking at treatment implications. Before I get to the treatment piece, though, I didn't um, have enough time last time. So I want to make sure today that I'm re-highlighting the point that I always try to bring up every chance that I get is looking at what's maintaining anxiety. So when we look at our autistic kiddos, oftentimes they've got negative experiences socially, right? Because they, they, they might not have had a lot of social success. And a lot of the differences that they have in processing social information is going to influence their social success, right? If they're not able to see that my friend is bored, so I need to shift. I can't tell if I'm intruding their personal space. And so they're doing everything that they can to get away from me, right? That's going to influence our social success. And it's going to reinforce discomfort in social situations, especially if we are getting feedback, people are walking away, they're getting mad at us, and we don't understand what's going on. That's just going to reinforce some of that anxiety. Now, I've already talked a lot last week, make sure you do check out that episode about the intolerance of uncertainty, right? And that's true for, for anxiety anyway, but there is just such a severe intolerance of not knowing what's going to happen. That's a huge problem and is particularly problematic in social situations because pretty much every social, social situation is so ambiguous. We never know, even with an adult, how the interaction might go down, right? Adults are usually safer. Adults usually respond a little bit more consistently, but we never know, right? And so it can be really ambiguous. So even if you're in the exact same place with the exact same person, the same sort of time of day, the social rules can change from one day to the next, from one minute to the next, one hour to the next. So a relatively unique aspect with autism is that social confusion just that just adds to the, the fire. And then all of the sensory experiences and the overload that can come with social interactions like... Um, gross things that other kids do. I've got a lot of kids right now, actually, who are gross. They don't want to go to school. A lot of it is because, you know, younger kids pick their nose or they just do really gross things or they're really loud or they smell bad. All of that can really reinforce the anxiety and avoidant behaviors as well. And the longer all of that goes on without anyone knowing, you know, once autism isn't, you know, what piece is the autism piece and what piece is it in the anxiety? If we don't really know that, it can just cause a big tailspin. So we got to be really careful. There's always environmental considerations. What does their exposure to social interactions look like? If they don't have a lot of social opportunities in the first place, it can be a lot harder for them to manage. That's one of the downsides of COVID we, our kids just haven't had a lot of opportunities in the first place. So I'm finding they're having just a harder time managing at all. And when someone is really self-aware and 
and they're really socially motivated. A lot of my autistic girls have such huge self-awareness and they're so motivated. They really want to have friends, but they're not maybe successful making friends. Now they're particularly vulnerable to social anxiety on top of like normal social anxiety that we might have, especially as we go through development, right? We progress through school, we get a little bit older, we get into high school. Social anxiety is a huge thing for a lot of our teens, but you add autism to that. We actually see way more severe social worries in our autistic youth than our typically developing kiddos anyways, right? They have way more automatic thoughts about social threat and they experience way more social failures and way more social issues over the years. So that social anxiety and that avoidance that comes along with it really increases it. And then with that social anxiety, you know, we're seeing way more loneliness and with loneliness, we know that that contributes to a whole host of physical and psychological outcomes and physiologically, even, you know, with our physical health, loneliness, and I've said this before, is worse than smoking a pack of cigarettes every single day. So it has huge implications. And so when these kiddos are avoiding those social opportunities, now they have less opportunities to work on their social skills. They're not front of mind with their friends and we're just creating a vicious cycle. They're just never learning the skills and the confidence that they need in those interactions. And so those experiences could be key maintaining factors. We know as soon as we avoid, we might feel better short term, but now we're actually growing our anxiety. Uh, so avoidance is always a big problem. We know that. And another big maintaining factor that's true for most kids and for sure, pretty much every kid that I've worked with actually, and especially true for our autistic kids are parents. We know anxiety influences how we function as parents. It influences family function functioning really significantly. Um, and then we add autism to that. I see a lot of tension in couples and marriages and families, right? And so the anxiety can really affect the family more than in any other social environment, but then also the influence of the autism on top of that, wanting to make sure that we're optimizing our child's success. Um, and so, you know, looking at the caregiver influence on the treatment response is a huge consideration, right? We know that parents of autistic kiddos are usually even more stressed and anxious than other parents, which makes sense, right? Their parents are naturally way more involved in their lives from an early age. If they got an early diagnosis or later on, they're just more involved. And we know that sometimes, you know, um, a lot of these parents will use a lot more protective parenting styles than kids that don't have autism because it's really hard to know what is it that I actually need to protect my kiddo from, right? Do I actually need to push them a little bit more? Do I need to encourage them to face their fears? Do I need to make sure I'm protecting those sensory sensitivities? So we see this caregiver response to anxiety and their over-involvement contributing to maintaining anxiety. And it's not surprising, right? Um, there's some researchers, uh, Dakota and colleagues, they found that when they reduced parental involvement, anxiety actually improved and the autistic kiddos independence improved as well. Um, so just looking at their everyday life, you know, those adaptive functioning self-care skills actually got better. Right. And I think that it's really hard because we think that our kiddos have a disability and so therefore we need to support them, but it's not, I mean, it, it, depending on 
what supports they need, but a lot of times we are just getting in their way. And so uh, when we look at autism, it's differences. It's not a disability. It's differences in how the brain is processing information. And so we need to make sure even more so with these kiddos, we aren't creating dependency traps and that we are getting them to be resilient, to do things, to figure things out on their own. Right. So I think that that's really important. Um, So let's get to the treatment side of things. We want to make sure we're avoiding those accommodations um, that are maintaining anxiety and create dependency tracks. Right. Now, when we look at the research, autistic individuals usually use maladaptive emotion regulation strategies more than any other, right? So people who aren't autistic. And so when we're using maladaptive coping strategies, it usually internalizes our symptoms and including anxiety and depression. So it's making that anxiety and depression worse. So we can't use traditional approaches most of the time, right? If, If we are assuming that this is a neurotypical presentation of anxiety, But if it's not relevant for our autistic kiddos or even adults, it doesn't matter, right? So I just want to put a plug here about differential diagnosis because we can't diagnose anxiety the same way we could with neurotypical children. And so that's another piece too. That differential diagnosis is beyond this episode. I'm not going to get into that today. I just want to focus on treatment. I do have my differential diagnosis workshop though, where I'm looking at, is it ADHD? Is it autism? Is it autism? Is it anxiety? What about trauma? How do we tease apart all of these different things? What is what? I I do have a workshop where I'm going to deep dive into all of those. What is what? And how do we know what is what? And teasing them all apart. So check out that workshop, but it's beyond the scope of today. The one thing that I will say is that a lot of the diagnostic tools that we use with the general population don't really work (laughs) with our autistic kiddos because we're assuming anxiety looks the same, which hopefully if you listened last week, you'll realize it's very different for at least half of our neurodivergent kiddos. So our typical instruments probably aren't going to be very valid. Um, I always teach, when I teach graduate students, I'm always getting them to think about the underlying mechanisms of what's happening for a client, what's happening for a kiddo. Um, And then what are, what is their approach, right? How are you going to make a change, make improvements? And so they got to match up how we think about anxiety, how we think about autism and how we're going to approach, how we're going to actually support these kiddos. It has to match up. And so we have to incorporate those inherent differences that are in the brain that we see in autism into our treatment. And so, like I said, it's a good idea to address those maintaining factors. We're going to always start there. We want to set up the environment for success um, just so that they can move forward and be the resilient kiddos and have those resilient responses that we want. But when we get to the direct work, we look at those underlying mechanisms of anxiety for our autistic kiddos. So sensory processing, for example, is a huge one. We can look at sensory integration, but certainly a lot more research is needed when we're looking at that. Um, When we look at all the pathways, a huge pathway is a lack of emotional awareness. So we need to work on their emotional awareness, which I talked about last time. So we can use approaches like mindfulness, right? We have to help improve their awareness of emotions in the first place. They have to be able to listen to their body. They have to build their emotional literacy and their, their emotional awareness, 
until they have the skills to recognize their emotional experiences, there's not much more we can do. So they really have to have those skills, right? And then we can work on improving their ability to cope with those emotions when they come up. So being able to respond adaptively to stress when it shows up rather than trying to avoid it in the first place. There's lots of modified mindfulness approaches out there when we're looking at autistic kiddos. Um, but we need to focus, you know, on, on combining the mindfulness strategies with the emotional literacy. That's going to be really important for our kiddos. And another area that I talked about last week was the disrupted pathways in the brain that make habituation possible, right? And so habituation and being flexible is really hard in the autistic brain. So we have to work on being flexible, being able to tolerate uncertainty right? That's a common theme you've heard me talk about through all of my episodes. It doesn't matter if they have autism or not, but this tolerating uncertainty, we see underscore, you know, pretty much every area of challenge that I talked about last week. And so it's contributing to the social challenges. And so we absolutely need to work on this as well. Um, when we look at some of the research, Rogers and colleagues, they actually developed a coping with uncertainty um, in everyday situations program. It's called Cues. And so it's a parent group um, where they intervene. It's a parent intervention program, and it teaches parents strategies to reduce their kiddos intolerance to uncertainty in everyday life. So they get parents out of the common traps that they find themselves in. First of all, I always talk about, let's get out of those accommodation traps, the very traps that I'm always talking about in my podcast, right? Um, and, and we want to make sure that we're not using those thinking that we're trying to make anxiety better because we're actually making anxiety worse, right? So if we're always giving them predictability, if we're always telling them exactly what's going to happen in their day, if we're giving them that certainty, it's not going to help. And so parents need to learn about how to stop accommodating for those things, right? I think it's very counterintuitive because they're always hearing, lay it out. They need predictability. But if you also have an anxious kiddo, it can become a problem. So parents are learning those skills that they can use to... Uh, not create those dependency traps, not do all of those accommodations, but also help their kiddos learn to tolerate that uncertainty better, to problem solve for themselves when they're not sure what's going to happen, right? So that's a huge piece. And it's a huge piece that we know is always important that we always first address. I want to see parents before I see kids, just to make sure we're setting them up for success. For success. But then, of course, there's things that our kiddos can learn, too. So I like pulling principles from things like ACT, um, acceptance commitment therapy. So learning to let, let things be, right? So just accepting them. We can't push them away. Anything that we do to try to eliminate our anxiety or reduce our anxiety is probably going to make it worse. So we just got to let it be. It's that acceptance. And if we can learn to letting it be, letting it go, it can be really helpful. For my teens and adults, I usually have flow, flow charts that I make um, where they can follow along, but they can see like what happens here, what do I need to do? And a lot of times it's not about reacting, it's about sitting, <laughs> sitting with whatever is coming up and sitting with uncertainty. Now, one thing with this intolerance of uncertainty is that they might believe that the uncertainty is negative, right? 
and threatening. Obviously, that's where the anxiety is going to go. I don't know what's going to happen. And I believe it's going to be bad. And I believe that I can't handle it. That's what anxiety is, right? So any ambiguous situations are way too stressful. And so they're avoiding them. So we got to make sure that they have lots of experiences and opportunities to be in those situations so that they can learn for themselves. Hey, I can manage it. Hey, it didn't turn out how I thought it did. Or hey, it did turn out how I thought it did. And guess what? I handled it. I survived. So that exposure piece to build their tolerance of uncertainty is so important. But we got to make sure we're coupling that with emotion regulation at the same time. That is so key. We can't just push them in and get them overwhelmed. And now they've got a meltdown, right? That's not helpful. And we know with meltdowns, they have no control over it. So there's no learning that's going to be happening. So we want to build that emotional awareness in the first place, their emotional literacy, their coping skills, their in, uh, tolerance, being able to tolerate all the uncomfortable feelings that come with uncertainty. And now we're going to put them into situations where they can actually put it all together, right? Now, if we look at some of the traditional gold standard approaches, we know CBT, fantastic for neurotypicals, right? But we're still needing way more research for our anxious autistic kiddos. And of the work that has been done, it, it, it can be effective. There's a lot of research showing that it can be effective as long as we're modifying the traditional programs. And I'll get to that in just a second. But, you know, the important core features that are still useful, we will still use. And, and a lot of my anxiety compass will does use a lot of those core fe features. Um, but we also want to include for our autistic kiddos learning more about anxiety, right? When it's helpful, when it's being unhelpful, these are things that we want to teach all kiddos, but we want to make it very explicit and very clear in the autistic brain, right? That it can be helpful. How does it show up? How does it show up in our bodies? How does it show up in our minds, right? Um, we need to look at the executive functioning challenges that they have, flexibility, exposure, all of that's still going to be important and obviously working with parents and teachers, right, to make sure that they're responding in helpful ways and not getting sucked into those anxiety traps. So we want to make sure we're promoting child's in independence, right, and experience handling all of those different situations. So those are the core pieces that we're going to keep based on other programs that are out there. But when we want to maximize effectiveness, we need to make sure we're integrating those key characteristics of autism. And so we're really focusing even more on the emotional literacy and that emotional awareness piece so explicitly, lots of repetition. Um, incorporating their special interests is a huge piece here, right? Uh, focusing on other differences as well. So how can we promote social success? How can we engage effectively with others, right? And how can we manage our emotions as we engage with others? These are key pieces we need to make sure that we're adding in there. Okay. So again, a lot of exposure still, of course, in these interactions so that they can build that, that tolerance and, and use their, their strategies to be able to regulate their emotions effectively. Um, the mindfulness, the ability to respond flexibly to stress is really important, but we're going to make sure everything is concrete because a lot of these verbally based concepts are too abstract. So if I'm just saying, be mindful, accept, let it go, right? It can be really hard. And so we want to adapt that for our autistic kiddos and have really concrete visuals that can be really helpful, right? And if they're including kids specific 
interests all the better. So, I mean, I always use the analogy of the snow globe, right? When, when I'm talking about, we just got to let it go and let it be and just accept. And so when we shake that snow globe, it gets all jumbled up. And if I say, okay, kiddo, try to get the snow to the bottom of the snow globe as fast as you can. Anything that they try to do is just going to make it worse. We got to put it down and then we'll see it settle, right? So that's it. just one example. There's so many different examples that we can make these concepts really abstract or so, these abstract concepts make them really concrete. Sorry. Now, those traditional pieces that were taken out or at least simplified um, when we look at these modified programs are cognitive restructuring, which if you know me, I don't focus on that so much anyways, because if we're doing the experiential pieces right, it's going to happen naturally. They're already going to reframe their thinking already naturally. Um, if there's phobias of certain things, right? Um, if, if it's too much and too overwhelming and they do go into meltdowns really easily, maybe we do look at imagining the situation. So we're using imaginal desensitization um, if they can, but that can be problematic because they might not be able to create those scenes in their head, right? So how do we create something different? Virtual reality? right? There's a lot of promising work when we're looking at virtual reality that can help with those exposures. So they, they don't have to rely on imagination. A lot of my girls can. And so maybe that's where I'm going to start, which isn't something that I necessarily would with a neurotypical kiddo, because I don't, I'm not worrying about the big overload, the big overwhelms that I see in my autistic kiddos. Um, there's some work out there suggesting pre-therapy is helpful. So it's way more psychoeducational before we actually go into skill building, um, that psychoeducational piece, which I would say is great if we do that at the same time as the parent piece, because parents can already and teachers can already be putting things into place to build their kiddos resilience while the kids are learning about, you know, building emotional literacy, for example, right, which is what they're going to need anyways. But every child is going to be different. Autism is so diverse and the differences are so much bigger than their similarities. So we need to make sure we're adapting our approach from case to case, from kiddo to kiddo, because there might be other skills that they need to focus on. So we always got to keep that in the back of our mind. So just like every child responds to medications differently, right? And, and they have to have those medications tweaked as they get older or as they're trial, trialing different medications. So too, we need to do the same with our interventions. We need to see what works, what doesn't, how do we need to tweak them to optimize their successfulness, their usefulness, effectiveness. I'm really struggling with words today. Um, we know a lot of these kiddos have limited opportunities to develop confidence in social interactions, like I already mentioned, and especially with new people. And so that's actually something to really think about in therapy, right? For clinicians or for parents too. How do we make a really safe space where we can focus on creating lots of positive social interactions? Because if they're in this loop of fail, 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 everybody laughs, everybody walks away, everybody gets mad, I still have no friends, it's going to be really hard for them, for us to be able to work on any of these things and for them to build their resilience and to have those experiences that I can handle it right? So we want to make sure we're creating that space. And first, making sure they have the skills in the first place before we start throwing them into all these different situations. That's always important. So what skills? Well, 
can they hold a conversation? Can they initiate an interaction appropriately in the first place? Do they know how to approach people? Do they know how to join in a group if they want to play a game? Um, do they know how to handle teasing, just light teasing or, you know, more sarcastic sort of things? Do they know how to talk to unfamiliar people, whether it's peers or adults? Do they know how to interact with more than one person in a group, right? Um, do they know, really importantly, do they know how to advocate for themselves? So we have to build their skills, right? And, and use those skills in real life. So there's two parts to that. Learning the skills in the first place, right? That piece of it. And so maybe there's some role playing, maybe there's some video modeling, right? Videoing them in the situation. And now they can watch back and critique what was, what was I doing that was good? What was I doing that needs to be tweaked? And now I'm going to go and use that. We're going to do it again. And I'm going to use those skills once I've got a handle on them in the natural settings. That's so important. That's the piece that social groups are missing is usually they're not... They're never learning those skills out in the real world, maybe with this group of kids, with this facilitator, but I'm not actually going out into the world and generalizing to know how to handle, interact with the rest of my classmates or people on the playground or kids in the cafeteria at lunch, right? And so we want to make sure parents are involved too, because they need to be practicing these skills and getting their kids to make sure that they're using these skills in the real and you know everyday world, in the real environment. So the approach is a really proactive one, which I'm endorsing all. I'm always saying we got to get on offense, right? We got to be really proactive, proactive. So that's true for anyone. And it's definitely critical for our autistic kiddos. We just have to adjust how we're interacting clinically with them. And we're making sure we're modifying our approaches to meet their unique needs. And so any work we're doing based on the primary challenge of this specific kiddo, right? And it's important that we're having both the parents and the kiddos working together to identify what is what are the most important aspects that we need to work on? Are there skills here? Or is it really just more about practicing the skills? Now, one thing that I haven't addressed um, in about half of the autistic population um, is if they have intellectual disability, a lot of them also experience anxiety. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of great research on effective interventions, um, but we definitely need to modify our approach even further. But a lot of the, the skills are going to be the same. It's just how they are taught is going to be adapted. And so and I have done some work, it's been a few years, but I used to do this quite often. And it was really just through experience. You know, I couldn't explain a reinforcement program, for example, but I would reinforce them for when they were being brave and resilient and managing and coping. So I think that that's important that we think about what are we expecting kiddos to do? Are we expecting them to do things that are within their capacity? Plus one, right? We want to stretch out of their comfort zone a little bit, but we got to think of where they are intellectually and how much they can understand, right? And we got to make sure we're not asking kiddos to do something that their brain simply can never do because there are differences. We expect our autistic kiddos to learn to read context, to learn to figure out how other people are feeling, to create scripts, to make sure they're addressing everybody else's needs, to make everybody else comfortable. But those scripts are essentially scripts for masking. We're asking them to do things their brains do differently. And so we're actually just creating more anxiety, right? 
because we're telling them to be normal, but that takes so much effort for them. And they're not actually learning adaptive skills that are going to be helpful for them. That's just going to lead, just getting them to mask more is just going to lead to more anxiety and eventually burnout. So we need to make sure, really sure that we're actually working on the skills that are going to benefit them not benefiting other people, right? So what they would benefit from rather than expecting the impossible or making it worse for them. There's so much sensory load, so much pressure to function within a social situation, even just, you know, the unspoken social rules. How do I posture my body in comparison to you? There's so many different things that we need to think about. So we need to help teach them the skill to advocate for their needs. That's why that advocacy piece is so important. They need to figure out what are my needs rather than me trying to figure out what your needs are, right? Being able to say upfront, hey, I have a hard time reading body language. So just tell me if I get too close, if I'm talking too much, right? Yes, they're making themselves a little bit more vulnerable, but that is the kind of skill that they need to have is to say, this is what I need from you. What do you need from me? Let's make it very clear and explicit. And then we can move along happily and without all the stress right? So we got to really think about those kinds of things. And, and even other little things like forcing our kiddos to shift their attention, that could be really hard. They might need a little bit more time to help their brain shift. So we got to give them that accommodation. Sometimes for these kiddos, they need to have those accommodations. Maybe we do modify tasks, right? So that they are concrete. Maybe we're reducing the motor demands, Maybe we're supporting the executive functioning skills so they don't keep hitting a wall of failure, 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 right? So those are things that we can absolutely do. So obviously they still need to learn problem solving, but we can look at those accommodations. If it's going to support some of their brain differences that they can't just cope with on their own, that's going to be really important. So here I'm saying accommodations probably going to be needed as long as we're not creating a dependency trap that they're not learning the skills that they need, right? Um, making sure that they're managing their energy levels. That's going to be really important because if they are masking, 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 holding it together, they're draining their energy levels. It doesn't matter how motivated they are to work on anxiety. If their battery is drained, they're going to have nothing left to be able to regulate their emotions, regulate their behaviors. So that's where we might make appropriate adaptations in their environment. I know for myself, if I have bright overhead lights or if I'm on my computer all day, but especially the bright lights, it actually does a number on my head. If I can turn off fluorescent lights and just have natural light in my room, all the better, right? And so if we can make lighting more natural and address those sensory needs, and it's a reasonable thing to do, then do it. Why wouldn't we do that? Right? Why calm? They're already experiencing this compounding stress. Why would we compound and expect them to be able to handle it? If it's a reasonable thing that we can manage, let's do it. Having visual schedules are really helpful, not so much for our ADHDers, but definitely for our autistic kiddos and even adults, but having a framework that they can follow on their own. It's not us always getting them to follow it, for example. So, and, and we want to make sure that that visual schedule isn't about creating predictability, this, and then this, and then this, and every single second of your day is outlined, but having that visual of this is how we respond when anxiety comes up can be super helpful, right? Just breaking it down. 
Now, one thing that we need to think about is if we are going to do an intervention program or, you know, sessions, usually we would have eight to 12 weeks, right? Eight to 12 sessions, right? That's not going to be enough for our autistic kiddos. The gains a kiddo might make might not stick for these guys, right? And same with ADHD, that generalization piece can be really hard. So they actually need longer periods of therapeutic intervention um, and with way more follow-up to sustain any changes that they have made. So far more than typically developing kiddos because that generalization is so tricky. And so we have to make sure that we're mixing things up. And so we need that time that we can try it in different places with different people at different times, right? So we're applying all of these skills that they're learning across contexts, across people, across time. And, and really it's gotta be a daily intervention. And so our week to week, whatever we're doing to support them, we're creating sort of a new plan, tweaking it a little bit, but every single day, I mean, I say this anyways, we want all our kiddos every single day, stretching out of their comfort zones, doing hard things, but it's so important for our autistic kiddos. Um, a promising piece is using technology and especially with our teens and adults. I, I, um, I know I'm, I'm a bit of a stickler when it comes to screens, but I do actually recommend different apps, um, to do regular check-ins being able to proactively engage in grounding exercises throughout the day, that can be really, really helpful just so that they can ground themselves down because there are those compounding stressors, whether it's from sensory overload, expectations, demands, whatever it is, we want to make sure they're able to ground themselves throughout the day proactively. So dropping into my body, how am I feeling? What do I need right now? Even just grounding my feet into the floor can be really helpful. Um, Tracking exposures is going to be really helpful as well. So what have I done that was tricky? How did I manage that, right? All of those things are going to be really important. They need to see how I managed getting uncomfortable, how I managed being brave. It's important, again, for all kids, but we definitely want to document it for our neurodivergent kiddos. And that includes our ADHD kiddos as well. And I will say, yes, Modified programs do have major successes for most autistic kiddos. So the, the, the modified sort of CBT approach. So making sure, again, we're focusing on their challenges, whatever it is. So self-regulation, rigidity, social skills, generalization, all of those things need to be included. Having that visual structure for them is going to be really helpful. Making sure they have enough time to work through each concept. And so that's why we need you know, we need to slow things down and make sure they really solidify. Why am I working on this? The importance of it. What does it look like in practice? How is it going to benefit me? And then let's go practice it, right? What barriers are going to get in the way? How can I address those? So I actually have actual written handouts and worksheets about the key concepts that they need to learn and, and that they're working on um, using a lot more hands-on activities. It's not going to be a lot of the talking, right? It's going to be all of those things, visuals and hands-on, lots of repetition and practice, lots of video modeling, all of those things is going to be really important. And like always, incorporating parents, 
is going to be important as well as their special interests. That's a key piece. Um, with teens, there's usually even more consideration. So again, we could potentially incorporate technology that could be helpful, but parents need to be involved too. And they need to really understand the developmental expectations of teens, right? So there's a lot of additional things to think about for youth. Just knowing where teens' brains sort of regress, it's at its most powerful there's so many different things happening in the brain, but it's also at its most vulnerable. And so whenever any big emotions come up, their brain actually regresses. So if parents are like, why are you acting like a four-year-old? That's probably why, right? Their emotion regulation and everything, it's so much harder for them. So we need to think what's developmentally appropriate for them. And oftentimes our autistic kiddos, even though they might be brilliant, it doesn't matter what their intelligence is with those executive functioning differences their developmental age is actually lower anyways. And so we got to be careful with what our expectations are. And even with all of these things, um, we do know that there's a huge proportion of people who don't show huge improvements. And so we're, you know, there's a lot of research to be done. We still have to continue investigating interventions, right? Um, we need to look at what our interventions are, whether you're a parent, if you're a clinician, what are the child specific factors that could be making it hard to see those improvements? We just got to be making sure we're looking at everything. It's not because they're not doing their homework. Maybe they're not, maybe that's part of it, but we also need to make sure we're addressing everything. What's getting in the way then if they're not doing their homework, what's the parent anxiety, right? If that's getting in the way, we need to address that first. That's why it's so important to have them involved because we see way faster progress and improvements when parents and kids are kind of working together. Um, I will, you know, looking, look at that parent piece. Um, and I'm always talking about the parent piece because parents in any kid's life, even in our adult life, sometimes, and it's not just parents, teachers, coaches, family, friends, whoever's involved in supporting this kiddo or this teen, they really need a lot of psychoeducation about anxiety, autistic related anxiety, comorbid anxiety, autism. So we've got to look at it all separately. We've got to look at it all together and really understanding how our behaviors could be a manifestation from all of the rejection, the corrective feedback, everything else that they've gone through, compounding stressors, right? Maybe all of those things are manifesting because of those experiences that are overwhelming for them. It's not about being stubborn. It's not about being unmotivated, right? So I, I know I keep coming back to the traps and how we respond effectively when anxiety shows up, but that's so important. We got to ignore the anxiety piece. Of course you feel this way, right? We're not going to make a big deal out of that anxiety. We got to show that confidence. We're going to praise brave behaviors, right? And so that parent training and that parent coaching is going to be really important. Looking at our own anxiety, how we interact with our anxious kiddos, and how that autism can really influence how we as adults, whether we're parents or teachers or other, right? What we might be saying or doing that's maintaining that anxiety and how can we support them, whether it's their social skill development or whatever it is that they need to work on. Having a supportive piece is so important for all of our kiddos, but especially for autistic kiddos, because we know raising an autistic child or teen can be challenging. So we want to make sure that the parents are doing good and that they have their own support network as well.
Um, we also want to make sure we're highlighting their strengths. That's so important. What are your strengths? Identify them. How are you using them? And let's reinforce them every time we see those strengths. And what are some strengths that you're already doing? What are some strengths that we can build on to help you be successful? Those things are going to be really important. So drawing out those, writing them down, making it explicit can be so important. Um, I know I get a lot of questions about medications. I'm not going to go too much into medications. We know antidepressants are widely used when we're looking at comorbid autism and anxiety, but the results, they're just not consistent, right? So it's inconsistent. They're really limited. There's not great support. And so that makes me wonder, why are we using these medications so widely when there's not such great support? I think people are just at their wits end because they want that quick fix, but there's no quick fix. We need to take this time. It takes time. And especially with neurodivergent kiddos, they need that extra time and support to learn the concepts and to put them into practice. Right. And they don't help with the core symptoms of autism. It's really inconsistent with anxiety. And the bone that I always have is, you know, when we're looking at anxiety and treating anxiety with medications is that they're never learning any skills. Right. So that's where I'm always really hesitant. So, yes, some kiddos might benefit, you know, from medications, but like I said, it's not consistent. And so many of our autistic kiddos are way more sensitive to medications anyway, and they're way more vulnerable to the side effects than their neurotypical counterparts. So we see a lot more agitation, irritability, aggression, poor tolerability, right? They're not learning to tolerate those uncomfortable feelings. Um, we can see way more hyperactivity, way more impulsivity, poor sleep. So it's really a case by case, just like our interventions, case by case, trial and error, seeing what's going to work. Same thing too with the medications. It's really a talk for the family doctor. Um, and you just want to make sure you're going down that route carefully. And if you are taking medications, you still always have to think about all of those other pieces. How are parents and teachers, other adults responding to anxiety when it shows up? What are the skills that kids are learning? Are they learning to tolerate that uncertainty, right? Are they learning the problem-solving skills? All of those pieces are still really important. So I'm going to leave it there for today. Really, it's a matter of Everything that's in my anxiety compass is still very applicable for our autistic kiddos. We just need to have them tweaked a little bit. Um, stay tuned because I'm actually expanding my um, compass. So I'm going to have a trauma-informed compass. I'm going to have a neurodivergent-informed compass. So those are things that I'm working on for the future, just so we can get into the nitty-gritty. Today was really just an overview. That's what my podcasts are, because the deep dive training just takes so much more time. If you do want to consult with me, let me know. I'm happy to consult. Um, my anxiety compass training comes with regular consultation. So you can actually go and put what you're learning into practice and then can consult with me. Let's see what's working great. What do you need to tweak? It's that sort of deliberate practice with ongoing feedback that is really going to help you be successful in the work or even, you know, as a parent in, in being able to promote your kiddo's success. So do check those training programs out where I deep dive into all of this. But like I said, um, the key pieces are always addressing the parent piece. And for our autistic kiddos, making sure they're learning the skills to build that emotional awareness to tolerate uncertainty, right? And to be able to cope and problem solve when challenges 
come up. So go enjoy the rest of your day and help those kiddos be bold and courageous. And I will see you next week. Oh, 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 oh,